one of my greatest encouragements as a pastor are the people that God has provided in my life. The partners and the teammates in ministry that God has placed in my life. This is especially fresh in my mind as we have just sent Scott Cope uh, to plant Trinity Church of Bedford, just a few miles north and west of us. What a beautiful picture it was of partnership and, and team ministry as 25 plus people from Beacon, from Hope, from Bedford, people that Scott had engaged and invited to be a part of the, the, the core team of the plant, standing up here, arm in arm, being commissioned by us one of their two sending churches. Just a glorious picture that we don't do ministry alone. We don't do ministry in a silo. We do it interconnectedly with others. And there's encouragement and fuel as we do this together, as we embrace this reality of partnership in ministry. I remember September 20th, 2015, when we as a church plant were commissioned from Hope Fellowship Church. And like Scott and his team stood on this platform, we stood on that platform at Hope Fellowship and just heard the prayers of God's people there at Hope. And we sung together great hymns of encouragement. We were doing this together. It was not a solo work, a siloed work. It was partnership in ministry. God advances his mission and encourages his messenger through partnerships. God advances his mission and encourages his messengers through partnership. And I want to explore this truth with you this morning as we continue our series in the book of Acts that we've entitled Church on Mission. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 18. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Acts 18 on page 927. Page 927. And if you're here and you don't actually own a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. So as you walk in through the lobby, you'll notice there's three bookshelves on your right-hand side. On the leftmost bookshelf down at the bottom, there are hard hardcover Bibles that are black. You can take one of those. You don't have to ask anybody. Just receive that as a gift. And if by chance you're new to reading the scripture, you'll look at that page, you'll see the larger numbers, those are the chapter numbers, then the smaller numbers are verse numbers. I'm going to read all of chapter 18 in Acts. And so let's begin reading. Luke is the author, and here's what he tells us. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, 
do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So the central message of chapter 18 is that God advances his mission and encourages his messengers through partnership and through promise. God advances his mission and he encourages his messengers through partnership and through promise. Now, as you look at this chapter, what we see here is partnership, promise, partnership. That's the, the, the flow. There's a, a little bit of a sandwich here. We meet new partners in the initial portion of chapter 18. Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila, who will become lifelong friends and partners in gospel ministry with him. And then we see this glorious promise of the Lord Jesus that he makes to Paul in a vision. And then after that promise and its fulfillment, we see partnership again, Priscilla and Aquila, and another partner added to that named Apollos. So this glorious promise of the Lord is bookended by partnership. All of it is intended to advance the gospel and to encourage those who herald the gospel. So God advances his mission and encourages his messenger 
messengers through promise and partnership. Let's take a look at the first part. God advancing his mission, encouraging his messengers through partnership. So Paul meets two new ministry partners in verses 1 through 4. Luke tells us, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Corinth was 46 miles west of Athens. That's where we saw Paul last Sunday, Easter Sunday, ministering there in Athens. Well, he leaves the city of Athens. He travels 46 miles west to the city of Corinth, a very prominent city in the Roman world. Powerful, wealthy, it was political, it was an economic center, it was a prominent city. And there in Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, who was a native of Pontus, that's modern-day northern Turkey, right on the Black Sea. That's where Aquila was from. He'd recently come with his wife Priscilla from Italy because Emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So Paul meets a husband and wife couple in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila, who'd been expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius. And we know that, that he did this sometime around 49 AD as a result of the uproar that was happening in synagogues because of the message of the gospel. So, so fearing rioting and upheaval, he just expels all the Jews out of Rome. And Priscilla and Aquila were of Jewish background, so they were part of the expulsion. Paul hears about them, and he seeks them out. He went to see them, Luke tells us. Verse 3, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers. Paul finds partners in Priscilla and Aquila. He finds kindred spirits in Priscilla and Aquila. Notice what they have in common. All three were visitors to Corinth. All three were tent makers by trade. All three had a Jewish background, and all three were Christians when they connected. So they're kindred spirits. They have a lot of commonality. So Paul seeks them out, and they become fast friends and ministry partners. And the rest of the scriptures show just how close they became and the long-term and fruitful relationship that budded forth from this connection. Paul says in Romans 16, verse 3, where he is greeting a host of people in Rome, He's not in Rome, but he's writing to the Christians in Rome. Notice what he says about Priscilla and Aquila. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. So here, like we've seen throughout the book of Acts, turmoil comes upon Christians, and they help one another. Paul is alluding to some kind of sacrificial act by Priscilla and Aquila. They risked their necks for me and other Christians. I mean, that was part and parcel of gospel ministry, sacrificing for one another, enduring hardship. And so Paul is speaking likely to events that happened here in Corinth or perhaps later when they do ministry together in Ephesus. They risked their necks for Paul. He has a great affection for them, loves them. Friends, what we witness here is the precious nature of partnership. Team ministry is glorious and precious. To do ministry with fellow brothers and sisters in your local church is a precious reality, and I wonder if we realize it. Yes, we have quirks. Yes, we have difficult personalities at times. Yes, we have strife. But never let that color 
the beauty that it is to serve with teammates in your local church. You are not to do ministry alone. We are to do ministry together. That's what we see here. Do we realize the gift that we have in our partnership with one another? Notice what Luke tells us next about Paul. Paul reasoned in the synagogue, verse 4, every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul presses on in gospel ministry in a difficult place because he's been encouraged by his newfound friends. The very next thing that we see Paul doing after meeting these, this brother and this sister, Priscilla and Aquila, is continuing the work. So he's been fueled, he's been encouraged through these new friends. So first we've seen God advancing his mission and encouraging his messenger through partnership. Next we see that God advances his mission and encourages his messenger, messengers through promise. Luke writes in verse 5 and following, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So Paul's other ministry partners, previous partners, Silas and Timothy, who'd been traveling, ministering among Christians and churches in Macedonia, that is Thessalonica and Berea, they finally reach Paul there in Corinth. And they see that Paul is occupied here by the word. The word occupied there means to be absorbed in. Paul is consumed, he's absorbed by teaching the word to people there in Corinth. That's what his life was about, teaching the word, holding it out, heralding it to those who needed it. He's proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. So why did Paul go to the synagogues? Because he had a base of understanding there. He knew the Hebrew scriptures. He knew that those scriptures pointed forward to Jesus. So why would he go? He would go there and he would proclaim Christ as the fulfillment of those Hebrew scriptures. As he preaches, he comes under fire. Verse 6, they opposed him and reviled him. The Jews grow hostile over Paul heralding the message. They hate him, and they hate his message. They hate this Messiah. Friends, we are to expect opposition when we preach the gospel when we, when we share the gospel, when we lovingly hold it out, we should expect opposition. Oftentimes, it's a mixed response, as we saw last week in Athens, as Paul preached. Some mocked him. Some continued to contemplate it, say, hey, we'll, we'll hear this again, and others believed. So it's, it's usually a mixed response, but we ought not to be surprised when we are reviled or ridiculed or mocked. It's part and parcel of proclaiming the gospel to others. Do not be surprised by the fiery trial that comes upon you as you're seeking to live as a faithful Christian. And this is not unique to pastors or church planters. This is for all of us. If you're a Christian, you're commissioned to hold out the gospel in a compelling and loving way, and you will face opposition at times. Well, how does Paul respond to this opposition? Luke tells us in verse 6, he shook out his garments and said to, said to them, we'll see what he says in a moment, but what is this picture of shaking out his garments? This is a cultural symbol of displeasure, 
of separation and of judgment. It's akin to what Jesus encouraged his disciples to do when he sent them out two by two throughout the countryside to preach the gospel and to heal people, to exercise demons. He said, if someone won't receive you, shake the dust off your feet. In other words, if you're near them, shake it off as a sign of, I'm separating myself from you because of your inability and unwillingness to receive me and the Lord who sent me. So all the dust particles, I'm just shaking them off. It's a sign of separation. Shake out your, your, your garments. That's what we see here. He, he is separating himself from them in their rebellion and rejection of Christ. Not only does he give this gesture of separation, but he also speaks a word of separation and judgment to these hostile Jews. He said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent, for I have warned you. I've proclaimed God's mercy to you. You don't receive it, the results are on you. That's what he's saying. And he's picking up this motif in the Old Testament of a watchman. He's picking up here imagery from Ezekiel. Ezekiel was known as the watchman of Israel, the one who stood on the wall as a watchman waiting for the doom to come. And he would blow his trumpet to the people there saying, they're coming. Judgment day is coming. So a faithful watchman just simply warns people of what is to come, of danger, of judgment to come. This is what Ezekiel writes, Ezekiel 33, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He didn't heed the warning. He heard the sound of the trumpet and he did not take warning. His blood shall be on himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear the word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. There is an edge to this passage that Paul is picking up, and we cannot soften it. There's an edge to this. And that is, if you are a witness of Jesus, and that's every Christian here, you're a watchman or a watchwoman. You're declaring a day of coming judgment. And you're, with all your heart, are inviting people to turn to Christ for protection in that day of judgment. Now, we do this with a burdened heart, with the utmost love, not condescendingly, not in a mean-spirited way, but you're a watchman because you know what is coming. And when we don't do that, we will be held accountable for failure to blow the trumpet when we knew it was coming. And so there's this mutual accountability here. 
We as witnesses are held accountable for how we witness, for how we serve as watchmen. But people who hear, they're held accountable for how they respond to our message of warning. So there's this, this mutual accountability here that Paul is picking up on. And he's just saying, look, I've warned you. I've warned you. And you didn't heed. So therefore, your blood be on your own heads. It's not a mean-spirited thing. It's just straight reality. And so I wonder if we realize our role as witnesses. And I know this is tough work. I know we fear a relationship being on the line if we're to warn of judgment. But it is the most loving thing that we can do as we establish relationship with people to simply speak the truth, to speak of a merciful Savior who has come to shield us from the coming day of judgment. Jesus died. So we just celebrated. Jesus died at Passover, and that was strategic because what was the Passover lamb? Those who painted their doors with the blood of the Passover lamb were passed over in judgment by the angel of death. They were shielded from that day of judgment. And so it is with those who trust in the blood of Christ. They are shielded from God's judgment that is coming. And if you are a believer and you've received that, you're also a witness to a world in desperate need of that message. Paul's rejected by the Jews in Corinth. He declares his innocence of their blood on the day of judgment. And then he leaves the synagogue, but notice where he goes. Paul leaves the synagogue, walks down the sidewalk, and goes to the very next door. Obviously infuriating the Jews. He didn't go very far. He left their, their synagogue context, but he goes right next door to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. That means he was of Greek background who was sympathetic to the things of the Jews, but didn't become a full convert to the Jews. So he was open to hearing the word, but he didn't become a convert to all the rituals and the, and the laws of the Jews. So there Paul sets up shop and continues to minister. He's rejected by some, he's received by others. Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Crispus, who's a ruler of the synagogue, a prominent role, an administrative role, who would have selected the Hebrew scriptures that were read in the synagogue and those who would teach from those scriptures, he becomes a believer in Christ. And then Gentiles are also becoming believers at Paul's teaching. Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So these are local Corinthians of Gentile background who are hearing the gospel and responding to it in faith. God is producing fruit through Paul's ministry. And now notice the progression here. These Corinthians believe and are baptized. That's the natural flow. They believe in Christ, they profess that faith, and then they're baptized. That's the picture of a Christian. We hear the gospel, we believe the gospel, and then we're baptized upon that profession of faith as a public statement that we are a believer in Christ and in union with him in his death and resurrection. So when we dunk somebody in water right here where we do baptisms, it's a picture of a person's public proclamation that they are a believer in Jesus, and they're united with him in his burial and death, and united with him in his resurrection. Burial and death as we go into the water, resurrection to new life as you come up out of the water. That's the natural progression, and it's a step of obedience to the Lord Jesus who said in his final words, Matthew 28, 
baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So a very practical application today. If you're a believer in Christ, have you been baptized? It's a step of obedience to the Lord's word. And it's a public picture of your faith in Christ, and it encourages people. I love to see people baptized, to share their testimony. It's a public proclamation of the gospel. If you'd like to be baptized, if you're stirring, if this word here has stirred you, we would love to sit down and talk more with you about being baptized. While Paul does gospel ministry in Corinth, suddenly one evening, Jesus speaks to Paul in a vision. In verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now, the strategic question that we have to ask is why does the Lord Jesus give this vision to Paul at this juncture? Why does he see fit to meet Paul in a vision? The answer is Paul needed encouragement from the Lord. We've just seen the turmoil, the tumultuous nature of doing ministry in Corinth. Paul needed encouragement. And so the Lord Jesus comes alongside him in the face of all that hardship and says, don't be afraid, Paul. Keep speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. I am with you. That's the crux of the promise. For any disciple of Jesus, this should sound familiar to you. Because this is the promise that Jesus makes to everybody at the Great Commission. Let me read the Great Commission for you. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Notice the conclusion of the Great Commission. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. The promise of Christ's presence will fuel you and encourage you no matter your ministry predicament. Christ's presence is there. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's with us always, no matter our circumstances. Do you believe that? As you go out to engage maybe a family member or a neighbor who perhaps is, doesn't want to hear it or, or is hostile... Jesus is with you in those moments. He is sustaining you, and he is pleased with your humble and courageous outreach. Behold, I am with you always. Embedded in this promise of his presence is the truth about who does what in salvation. Consider what Jesus says to Paul about salvation in verses 9 and 10. Do not be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. What a glorious and encouraging statement. Jesus looks at the city of Corinth, as hostile as it was to Paul, his servant. He says, there are many people, my people, people who belong to me in Corinth. Jesus is the Lord of salvation. He is the one who calls people to himself. He is the good shepherd who calls out to his sheep through his messengers and they hear his voice. And they come to him. I have many people in this city. He's the Lord of salvation, and that should encourage us as we reach out to people. 
because he has appointed people. He's called people to himself. You're just his witness, and as you speak, some will hear the words of their master and come. He does the heavy lifting, but we, his followers, have a role to play. Notice what Paul does in response to the promise of Jesus, of his presence in verse 11. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. You talk about encouragement and fuel for ministry. Jesus has shown up and said, Paul, I'm with you. I am with you. Keep at it. Don't be silent. And so what does Paul do? He stays another year and a half. The promise encouraged him, and he did his work. Jesus calls people to himself, but he uses the agency of people sharing him. That's how God has divinely set it up. We speak the truth of the gospel, and God calls people to himself as the true sheep hear his voice. So who does what in salvation? Disciples of Jesus teach, and Jesus calls as we teach. I wonder, if you're here and you're not a Christian, do you realize that God has appointed you to be here? to hear the very message that I'm speaking today. God loves you and appointed you to be here this morning to hear this message. Are you hearing his voice? Oh, if you would believe in Christ, in his death and resurrection, you are forgiven. You receive mercy when you deserved wrath and you enter a relationship with this good Savior. He sent someone for you. We have a role, God has a role. The tension of divine sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation. Robbie Gallaty in his book, Growing Up, says it well. Human success in evangelism is in the sharing, not in the saving. Human success in evangelism is in the sharing, not in the saving. The saving is the Lord's work. We are measured by our sharing, our witnessing, our being the watchman. Let's do our work in sharing with every ounce of effort that we have, with all of our hearts, and trust God to do his work in his time. Jesus advances the gospel and encourages Paul, his messenger, with his promise. And next we see the fulfillment of the promise in verses 12 through 17. But when Gallio was proconsul, he was the chief judicial officer in Achaia. Achaia is the region which Corinth is in. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. What do we witness in this passage? Don't miss this the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. Sometimes it takes a while for the promises to come to fulfillment. It's immediate here. Jesus says, Paul, I'm with you, and no harm will befall you. And the very next thing, no harm is befalling him. Promise fulfillment. Jesus is a promise giver, and Jesus is a promise keeper. Take it to the bank. What he says in his word will always come to pass. Let it fuel your soul on the dark and difficult days of being a Christian. What he says always comes to pass. 
Disciples find encouragement in the faithful promises of the Lord. And if that statement is true, then it is imperative that we know the faithful promises of the Lord, isn't it? Let me just give you a sampling here. One of the best things you can do as you read your Bible is to write down the promises of the Lord. This is just a sampling. There's hundreds of them. This is just a sampling for you. During the ache of loneliness and isolation, God holds out to us Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, and Hebrews 13, verse 5. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. He's there with us. It's a promise. In your battle with habitual sin in your life, particularly those times when you're in that same rut, that same sinful practice, will you believe the promise of God in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. That sin doesn't own you, Jesus does. That sin doesn't define you, Jesus does. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Do you believe that? When we fall deep into sin, God holds out the promise of forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is just a sampling of his promises. When we're crushed by guilt and self-condemnation, we lift our eyes and find peace and power in the truth of Paul, Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through the challenges of ministry and church planting, we can rest in Jesus' promise, Matthew 16, verse 18. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh, did I cling to that promise in the midst of my own fears of failure of this church then, seven years ago, and now today? Jesus builds his church, not Dane. Jesus. And then lastly, through times of sorrow and sickness and suffering, we can find peace in what is to come when Jesus returns. Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Every heartache, every situation of brokenness is an opportunity to lift your eyes from that heartache to hope in Christ who is coming. Rest in the promises of your Lord. They are everywhere. They will encourage you and they will fuel you forward. God advances his mission and encourages his messengers through partnership. God advances his mission and encourages his messengers through his promise. And then Acts 18 concludes, we revisit the first truth about partnership. God advances his mission and encourages his messengers through partnership round two. So we're going to the, the bottom layer of the sandwich here. Luke tells us in verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Syria is where Antioch is. That's Paul's sending church. They originally sent him out. That's where he's going back to his base of support of partnership. At Centria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. It's kind of a strange reality here, but he's just, he's under a Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. He would shave his hair. He would abstain from alcohol as an expression of thanksgiving for deliverance a posture of thankfulness and gratitude. So he's under this Old Testament vow. And then they came to Ephesus, and he left Priscilla and Aquila there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. 
But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus to establish a base of ministry there. He trusts his new partners. And we see a foretaste of future ministry. Paul's only going to be there for a moment, but he's going to come back on his third journey and spend three years there. But until then, he's leaving Priscilla and Aquila to establish the base there. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church that is in Jerusalem, and then he went down to Antioch. So this concludes Paul's second missionary journey. Now, before we go on, I just want to briefly flash a map up here. You can get lost in the details here, because these places are, are, are mostly foreign to us. But I want to just do a little leg of Paul's second missionary journey. So he left originally from Antioch, and he traveled this way through churches that he had planted in Lystra and Iconium and Derbe. Then he went up, Mysia, crossed over to Macedonia, to Berea. Last week, we saw him traveling south to Athens, 46 miles west to Corinth here. And then what I just read through you was a long journey that, that Luke summarizes in just a few verses. He leaves Corinth, goes to Ephesus, leaves Aquila and Priscilla there, and then he makes this long trip by boat all the way to Caesarea. I mean, Luke, Luke says it in a verse, but it's a long way and would have taken a long time. So he goes back here, spends a little bit of time in the church in Jerusalem, and then he goes down to Antioch. Well, that's kind of weird. He's going north, but Luke says he's going down. It's because it's an elevation change. Jerusalem was high. When he goes down, he's going not down as in south, but down as in elevation. Jerusalem from this Mount Zion goes down to Antioch. And then we're told he starts his third journey. And this is what he's going to do. He's going to leave Antioch. Luke does it really quick. And he's going to go all the way through encouraging these Christians. And boom, he's going to go to Ephesus, meeting up with Priscilla and Aquila. So he's kind of making these, these circles. But he's concluding here his second missionary tour. Verse 23, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he's encouraging the churches that were planted, the Christians that were converted. He's just going back and pastoring them. And then we meet another partner named Apollos in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Alexandria is this hub of intellectualism, of scholars. There's a renowned library there. This is where Apollos is from. And he is eloquent. He's a good teacher, but he's incomplete in his teaching. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He didn't know the baptism of Jesus Christ that Jesus commanded at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Here we see the beauty of partnership on display. You have a guy here who is gifted. He's, a, he's a, a new partner of Priscilla and Aquila and ultimately of Paul, but he's incomplete in his understanding. So what happens? Priscilla and Aquila take him aside privately and fill the gaps in his teaching. They just 
lovingly, graciously come alongside him in private. That's how you correct people. You do it lovingly in private, graciously. I remember in January 2010, I was a year into being a pastor at Hope Fellowship Church as the associate pastor. I didn't have many sermons under my belt. And I remember preaching in the 9 o'clock service. They also have an 11 o'clock service. And Curtis, the lead pastor, who's a dear friend and mentor of mine, pulls me aside and says, Dane, look, you're preaching Psalm 32. You're doing a great job. But you got to show people how Psalm 32 is fulfilled in Christ. You're not clear enough on the gospel. I was like, oh, thank you. And so the next service, I just tightened that up a little bit. He loved me enough to help me, and he did it privately. Will we come alongside people who need to be corrected and encouraged? Do it privately. Do it kindly. And if you're on the receiving end of correction, are you teachable or do you get defensive? Apollos, as eloquent as he was, he was teachable. Yes, I will receive that truth. Are you teachable? That's how you grow. If you can be taught. And when he wished to cross into Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Achaia, that is Corinth. So notice what Apollos is doing. He's taught by Priscilla and Aquila. He's tightened up. He's discipled there. And then they send him to Corinth where Paul and Priscilla and Aquila were just there. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public there in Corinth, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Notice the result here of faithful partnership. People being willing to speak the the good truths to one another. People willing to receive the truth. Ministry multiplies. Such that in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, you see the impact of Apollos. He was respected. He was faithful. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered those seeds, but God gave the growth. Paul honors the ministry of Apollos. When good partnership happens, multiplication happens. That's what we see here. The church is one body, many parts, and we all have a role to play. As we close, let me read this beautiful picture of one body, many parts. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 through 20. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Brothers and sisters, we need each other in ministry. We are dependent upon one another as we do ministry together. Let's pour our hearts out. Do it well together. Be encouraged by the partnerships that we enjoy and the promises that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word, for the witness of it, the preservation of it. Over thousands of years, Lord, we are dependent upon your word. Would you equip us and encourage us and send us forth? Give us opportunities this week to love you, to serve you, to give our lives for you and for the people you've placed in our path. And I pray for some here who are curious about where they stand with you, Lord. Would you empower them to trust in your mercy displayed at the cross, receiving your forgiveness, entering a relationship with you for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.